right, if you'll start making your way back to your seats. And as you do, go ahead and open your Bibles to Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1, and while you're doing that, let me just, uh, here in just a moment, we're going we're gonna to pray, and I just, I would beg of you to, to lift me up in prayer. I have been quite under the weather this week. Now listen, I'm just going to say it because everybody gets afraid. I've taken like 58 COVID tests, okay? It's not COVID. It's battling a sinus infection. Doc, it's not COVID, okay? Um, but I woke up this morning, my wife can test to it. I said, oh no, because I had zero voice. And so the Lord's given me some, so we're going to use it as long as we can, all right? Esther chapter 1, we're beginning a series through, through the book over the next couple months, series entitled A Story of God's Providence. And this morning, I want to I read the entire first chapter of Esther. So I invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. Esther chapter 1 in its entirety. And hear the word of the Lord. The author writes, These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush, And in those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress of Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia, Medea, and nobles, and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people from the greatest to the least who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and violet linen hangings were fastened with fine white purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stone. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus' palace. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine... Ahasuerus commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zetar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command and was delivered, that was delivered by the eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. The king consulted the wise men who understood the times, and it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshina, Shetar, Admetha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Memukan. They were the seven officials of Persia and Medea who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest position in the kingdom. The king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus' command that was delivered by the eunuchs? Memukun said in the presence of the king and of his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, 
but all the officials and the people who are in every one of King Ahasuerus' provinces. For the queen's actions will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, and she did not come. Before this day is over, over, the noble women of Persia and Medea who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. If it meets the king's approval, he should personally, personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of Persia and Medea so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and a royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout the vast kingdom, so all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. The king and his counselors approved the proposal, and he followed Mamukun's advice. He sent letters to the royal provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language, that every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. And this morning, I've tagged this sermon, God's Providence over earthly power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we dive into your word, that we would be amazed at your grandeur and your might. God, I ask, I beg that you would give me physical and spiritual strength this morning to preach your truth to your people, for we are ready. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. God's providence over earthly power. In 1938, there was a man named Roman Tursky. Roman Tursky quit his job as a flying instructor in France. Anticipating the Nazis would invade Poland, Tursky wanted to be there for his native country. Tursky flew to Poland in his own plane, which unexpectedly developed some engine problems that forced an emergency landing in Nazi-controlled Austria. He checked into a hotel until his plane's engine could be repaired and he could continue on to Poland. But the next morning, Tursky, while walking out of his hotel, he was literally run into by a Jewish man. And though they did not speak the same language, Tursky was able to understand him through his pants and cries as he yelled, Gestapo, Gestapo. You see, the Jewish man was literally running for his life being chased by the Gestapo. And so fearing for his own safety, Tursky initially hesitated to help the man. He just didn't want to get involved with that. But his conscience got the better of him, and so he hurried the man into his hotel and up to his room, and Tursky hid the man under his bed. Shortly thereafter, two Gestapo agents, they broke down the door to Tursky's room. Someone apparently tipped them off that there were two men rushing into the room. And so as he knew, Gestapo questioned Tursky, Tursky repeated the only German phrase he knew, I don't understand, I don't understand. And amazingly, the Gestapo didn't search the room. They didn't conduct any further investigations. They didn't even add surveillance to Tursky. And so when the Gestapo left his room, Tursky helped the man up from beneath his bed and he pointed to Warsaw on a map. You know, they couldn't speak the same language, so he's using hand gestures, and he's trying to get the man to understand that he can take him to Warsaw. And so the man agrees, and and Tursky drew prison bars to indicate that, that if they landed at an airport, he would definitely be arrested, but we can try to land in an open field instead. So the next day, when his plane was fixed, this is a true story, they managed to evade the customs agents at the airport, and they took off 
toward freedom. Tursky was able to set his plane down in an open field just across the Polish border. Tursky gave the stranger most of his money because the stranger had none. The conversation between the two men was limited by a language barrier, but the stranger tearfully shook hands with Tursky and disappeared into the Polish forest. When Germany invaded Poland the next year in 1939, Tursky fought the invaders as a Polish combat pilot. And when Poland was conquered, Tursky was able to escape Poland to England to join the Royal Air Force as a pilot. In 1941, he was wounded in battle by the guns of a German plane over the English Channel. Tursky crash-landed his Spitfire as close to his base as he could get it. He was rushed to the hospital, and they knew immediately that he had a severe skull fracture, and his brain was swelling. The chief surgeon of the hospital said that Tursky was a hopeless case, that there were very few surgeons in the world who could even operate on him, and none of them were in England. But there was a brain surgeon who read the news in the newspaper about a Polish hero named Roman Tursky. How he had shot down five planes before crashing himself and the newspaper confirmed that his case was hopeless. And so the surgeon, reading this story in the newspaper, asked the Royal Air Force at Edinburgh to fly him to this base so that he could attempt to save this war hero. They agreed, figured why not, he's a hero, we'll give it a shot. They agreed, the hospital allowed him to operate, and surprisingly, the operation was a success. You see, this surgeon was one of the only surgeons on this side of the world who could have successfully performed that surgery. A few weeks later, after regaining consciousness, Tursky looked at the surgeon, and the surgeon said, remember me? The surgeon asked this in a very heavily accented English accent, and Tursky, still dazed by the anesthesia, shook his head No, I don't know who you are. And the man explained to him that you saved my life three years ago in Vienna. A surgeon just before Germany invaded Poland was able to escape to England as well. Tursky would live to receive decorations from four different governments for his heroism. But he said that the most important thing that he lived for was to thank the man whose life he had saved, who later saved his life. Now, some have heard that story and thought, what an amazing coincidence. Others have heard that story and thought it must be fate, but I appreciate the honesty of one writer who doesn't really know what to make of this story, and he says, could supernatural forces or guardian angels have been at work to cause the engine troubles that enabled Tursky to encounter the surgeon or to cause the Gestapo, for whatever reason, not to search Tursky's hotel room and to protect both men? as they fled from invading armies so that they could be reunited in an English hospital a few years later. In other words, what the writer is asking in far more words is, could it be providence? You see, we live in a world that wants to minimize the hand of God. Oftentimes, we speak of coincidences in our life that just happen, but for us as believers, for us as Christians, we should call it what it is. There is no coincidence with God who rules with complete and utter authority. There are no coincidences. There are no chance encounters when you consider our God of providence. And so when we're speaking of providence, we're talking about God's preserving and governing all things. We're talking about the fact that God is in control. We're speaking of the fact, as the psalmist puts it in Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens 
and he does whatever he pleases. God is in control. His fingerprints are on every aspect of creation. Nothing happens outside of his will. And all things, all things will work together for his ultimate glory. We know this, church. The Bible from beginning to end tells the story of God's providence. Of God working in the world to accomplish all that he has set out to accomplish. And in the book that we're going to be studying, the book of Esther... It's a very unique story of God's providence in this world. But I want to say this at the front end. I got to do a little bit of intro here at the beginning, so bear with me. The book of Esther has been a difficult book for many people. I'll throw her under the bus because she's working with the kids. It's been a difficult book for my wife. She's like, I don't understand why it's in the Bible. And I guess she can take solace in the fact that she's not alone. The great German theologian Martin Luther said on multiple occasions that he wished that Esther was not included in the canon of Scripture. It's a difficult book. And it's difficult for many reasons. One of the reasons the story of Esther, though we often want to romanticize it, is such a difficult story is because Esther is put in a position that compromises her value as an image bearer because of her great great beauty she's paraded before a pagan king and she's forced to sleep with him at the king's request in order to gain his favor and she's treated as a piece of property rather than a person to be valued listen the story of esther is not the veggie tale story right it's not them putting on a talent show for the king to gain his favor It's not the movie One Night with a King where they sit in a reading room and talk about life. No, this is a woman who was forced to sleep with a man to see if she was worthy enough of his attention. It's a tough story to reckon with. And yet God is working in the midst of it. Another reason it's a very difficult story for many is because the book of Esther and the book of Esther alone has God's name mentioned nowhere. God is never referenced. He's never talked about. God's praise is always absent. He appears to be hidden from the entire book. But if I'm honest with you, that's one of the reasons I'm drawn to the book. Because I, like many of you, have gone through seasons where I just can't see God. I can't see his hand. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know why he's doing it. And there are times, let's be honest, where it is difficult to believe that God is working. And yet, as Spurgeon said, and you're going to hear this quote a lot throughout this series, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we trust his heart. And you see, Esther, though it is a difficult story, it's a story of God's heart. It's a story of God's covenant-keeping ways. It is a story of God's providence where many would look and see mere coincidence. We know that God is working. Though his name is never mentioned, though his praise from his people is always absent, God will not abandon his own. So let me tell you my aim here at the very beginning, my aim of the entire series through the book of Esther. I pray that as we examine the story of Esther, first and foremost, we would be more in awe of just how great our God is. That we would find hope in the fact that even when our backs are against the wall, when we cannot see God's hand, his providence is still at work. 
And so what I want to do each week, I want to take a chapter of the book. I might put a couple of chapters together, but each week I want to focus on a different area of God's providence, a different way that we see God's providence on display as we work through the book of Esther. And this morning, as I mentioned in the title, I want us to see God's providence over earthly powers. God's providence over earthly powers. Let me say it another way. That it doesn't matter who appears to have control in this world. God is still on his throne. So the story begins here in verse 1 and 2. And it tells us that these events took place during the days of of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. And in those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. So here in the first verses, we're introduced to the earthly king who's going to be a major player in our story. His Aramaic name is Ahasuerus, but you might know him by a different name. You might know him by his Greek name. This is King Xerxes. Now, I'm not recommending you watch it, but if you ever watch the movie 300, it's that king who's trying to kill the Spartans. That's the king that that is in the book of Esther. It's Xerxes. He ruled from 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. And in case you missed it when we read it, this man ruled in splendor. We catch a glimpse of that there in verse 6. White and blue linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged. I can't be comfortable. Gold and silver couches. Um, Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar marble, mother of pearl and precious stone. This This is a king who has conquered far and wide. He has a great deal of earthly power and authority. He has a great deal of respect. So let me recap the story we just read. So basically, King Ahasuerus is throwing a 180-day party. Yeah, that's a party, okay? 180 days. And you, I mean, you got to kind of chuckle at how the, the author of Esther writes it. He makes it known like, hey, the liquor was flowing. Like, whatever you wanted, he had it. Like, if it's Hennessy, he's got it. If it's bourbon, he's been to Kentucky, right? He's got it. I'm going to quit because I don't want to, like, list all these drinks. You'd be like, why does Pastor know all these drinks? But I'm just saying, right? The liquor was flowing, and he's partying. But the purpose of the party is seen in verse 4. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness. For a total of 180 days. Look, it takes some kind of pride to throw a party for yourself for 180 days. But then after this 180-day party, he's not done. He throws a shorter party. He throws a week-long party, seven days. And in this party, he invites everybody else. You see, the 180 days, that's for the princes. That's for the nobles. That's for the army. That's for those of earthly prestige. But then he throws a smaller party, this seven-day party for for the greatest and the least. Basically, those who are around Susa who wanted to come. He's like, I'll I'll throw you a bone here. I'll give you a little bit of the the royal alcohol. I'll let you try some of the food. I'll throw a smaller party for you. Now, this is a side note, but but you kind of trying to see a glimpse of where this king's priority lies. 180 days for the nobles, for the highborn, for the rulers, seven days for the peasants. And as I read that, I wanted to dive into it, but I don't have time. I I just found myself saying, I'm so glad God's not like that. I am so glad that God does not judge us by our earthly status. I'm glad that our God is a God who goes after the lowly and the meek and the humble. But as the seven 
day party after the 180 day party is winding down as you could imagine the king is drunk and so we read in verses 10 and 11 on the seventh day when the king was feeling good from the wine Ahasuerus commended Mamuhan, Bistha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zatar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. There's some debate among commentators about what it meant for her to come and show herself off. Some argued that this meant that she would have to appear nude in the midst of the party. Some said that might not have been likely, but whatever the case, the king wanted to show her off, another of his possessions to be displayed. But what the king was not expecting was that Queen Vashti would refuse to come. As you can imagine, the king got angry. And the king knew that he could not let this slight pass. So he gathers his wise men, right? His most trusted servants, the one who, who were supposed to understand the times and, and pose the question, what should we do about this queen? Now, this is a dicey issue, right? Because the wise men had to tread real carefully here. Because on one hand, they have, one hand, they have a king who they want to honor and they want to make sure that his dignity and his control remains intact. But on the other hand, they're still dealing with his wife, the queen. And so they've got to be somewhat political in how they handle the situation. Because if they go too far and insult her too much, well, that could be their lives. But if they don't do enough, the king might think, these men aren't trustworthy. So one of the wise men says in verse 19 and 20, if it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence. And a royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom. So all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. And so in his drunken stupor, the king likes this idea. And a decree is given, and the queen loses her position. And it's in this loss of the queen's position that the stage is set for chapter 2, where Esther will become queen. Now, it may be hard to see at first glance, but when you carefully parse through this story, even this introductory chapter, you see lessons regarding God's providence over earthly powers. And there are three of them that I've pulled out for you. And I like it because the lessons come in the form of irony. You see, the, the author of Esther, and we don't know exactly who it is, but the author of Esther uses great irony to point out how the earthly powers may not be as powerful as they think they are. And it is in those moments when God's providence shines forth. Here's the first lesson about God's providence over earthly powers. God is working. When earthly powers lose control. I don't know if I was able to click it on the screen. My, my control's not working here. God is working when earthly powers lose control. Did you catch the irony in the story? Right here you have a king who is throwing parties that last 187 days. And what's the purpose? Well, to show off how great and how splendid and how powerful this king is. To, to be able to accumulate a kingdom like this. Right again, verse 4, he displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. 
One commentator, Joyce Baldwin, notes this about verse 2. So jumping back up where it speaks of the king reigning from his royal throne. She writes, Persian kings are often portrayed in great splendor, sitting on a straight back throne surrounded by attendants. But in this verse, more is implied, for there had been obstacles in the way of a peaceful ascension. And King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, had to quell risings in both Egypt and Babylon. So the king is throwing this party, basically celebrating his grandeur and his ability to control all these nations. His ability to conquer and reign people from different nations and tribes and tongues, enemy armies. And he's celebrating the fact that his rule is secure. And yet... When this powerful king tells his wife to parade around in front of him, she tells him no. Verse 12, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by the eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. God is working when earthly powers lose control. There is some great irony there. This king celebrating his control loses all control when it comes to his wife. Some of y'all husbands can sympathize. That was a joke. Okay, nobody laughed, so I got to clarify it was a joke. Apparently it wasn't funny. But what's amazing is that as this king loses control, God is working to bring about his ends. Because here's the thing. God has never depended on people having control for his plans to succeed. I don't know about you, but that just brings me hope. You know, I've been burdened. Maybe you have too. I've been burdened. I couldn't get out of my head even as I was writing this point. I've been burdened for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan in particular right now. It's a mess. Our family, our brothers and sisters are in danger. Many will lose their lives, and there was a rapid loss of control in that country. I don't care what you think about. I'm not trying to get political. I'm just thinking about our family over there. But what's been encouraging is throughout the past few weeks, I've been able to read messages and letters. I actually have a friend who's a pastor in Afghanistan and got an email from him. And one of the things that's been so encouraging to me is that among our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, there seems to be this overwhelming belief that when it seems like all earthly powers have lost control, God is still accomplishing his plans. You see, in Afghanistan, God never needed the American military to accomplish his plans. God does not need a well-trained and well-supplied Afghan military to accomplish his plans. God does not need anything to accomplish what he wills. And so when earthly powers lose control, God does not. But listen to me, right? Maybe that didn't resonate with you. That's, just not, that's not just good news for Afghan Christians. That's good news for you and me. Because what that reminds us of is that you and I don't have to have it all together for God to do what he wants to do in our lives. Too often we get caught in this trap of thinking that for God to use me, I got to get my finances in order. That for God to use me, I got to get that promotion, I got to get that platform, I got to get that recognition that I don't have. For God to use me, I got to get that degree. For God to use me, I have to find a husband or a wife. For God to use me, I've just got to get a little bit more control over my own life. Listen to me. God does not need you to have control for him to exercise his. 
God didn't need you to have it all together when he saved you, and God doesn't need you to have it all all together to use you or work in your life at this moment. Because our God is a God who is working even when the power is to be, or even when we, in our own lives, lose control. God is not faced. God is working. Here's the second lesson we learn. God is working when earthly powers make foolish decisions. God is working when earthly powers make foolish decisions. Once again, there's, there's some irony in the story. In a drunken stupor, the king calls for his wife to come, and she refuses. So the king is angry, and then still... In a drunken stupor, the king decides this is a time to call his wise men, who are probably also in a drunken stupor, to make decisions and decrees that will affect the entire Persian empire. And what do they decide? Two things. First, the queen is to be banished from the presence of the king forever. And second, a decree needs to go out telling everybody that the queen has been banished, And that every man should be the master of his own house and speak the language of his people. And the irony here comes in that he made the decision when he was drunk. Now, I don't presume to know your story, but some of y'all might be able to relate and understand the foolishness here. Because I'm fairly certain that there have been some moments when some people maybe had a little bit too much to drink. And did some things they regret. I know that some foolishness can occur when people are drunk. And the king is no exception to this foolishness. Not to get too far ahead of us, but the irony actually comes in the first verse of chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti and what she had done. And what was decided against her. And the way we have to understand that is this isn't a king reflecting back going, I made the right choice. This is a king who sobered up, who cooled off in his anger and realized, what have I done? Because even for the king, there were some limitations on his power. A decree was a decree. It said it in verse 1, we got to make a decree so that it can't be changed. Not you, not me, not anybody could change a royal decree. And so King Ahasuerus knows that the decision that he made in his foolish, drunken stupor could not be undone. But again, here's the amazing thing. Even in the foolishness of the king, even in the sin of the king, God was working. God was working to bring Esther into a place where, he could, where she could serve the purpose and the people of God by fighting for their deliverance. Can I tell you something this morning, church? Those who wield earthly powers have made and will continue to make some foolish and sinful decisions. And that does not mean that God is not at work. I'll get real practical. Our government has made some foolish laws. Our Supreme Court has allowed for sinful policy. And the temptation is to sit back and say, how in the world could God have have allowed this to happen as if he is somehow still not working? Listen to me. 
God does some of his greatest work when people are at their most foolish. And some of you can testify to that today. Some of you know that when you were at your worst, God did his best. When some of you had no purpose, God gave you a purpose. When some of you had no direction, God set you on a path of righteousness. When some of you had no hope, you can testify that God did what Paul said and the God of hope filled you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Spirit, you are abounding in hope. Some of you know that God does his best work in the midst of our sin and foolishness because it was in our sin and foolishness where God grabbed us and snatched us and gave us a hope that is insurmountable. Some of you right now may be thinking, Michael, I know that's true, but you just don't get it. I keep on failing. I keep on falling into sin. I keep on struggling. I keep on being foolish. Well, let me say it again, that God can do some of his greatest work when people are at their most foolish, and you don't even have to take my word for it. Because Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the, world, the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom. Here it is. I love this. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Praise God that his perfect plan has never depended on imperfect people getting it right. No, it's always depended on the sovereign, all-powerful, perfectly righteous God of providence. God is not thwarted by the foolishness of men. Here's the third and final lesson I want to leave you with this morning. <clears throat> God is working when earthly powers think they are in control. God is working when earthly powers think they are in control. So not only when they lose control, but even when they think they've got control, God is working. One of the greatest points of irony in this story to me, in this first chapter, is when the decree goes out. I remember like reading this and literally laughing. Remember, the queen ignores the authority of the king. And the fear is that this one action will cause mass chaos in homes throughout the kingdom. That because the queen disrespected her husband, now every woman in the kingdom is going to say, I can do that too. And they just think chaos is going to ensue. Look again at verse 18. It says, before the day is over. This is how afraid they were. Before the day is over, the noble women of Persia and Medea who who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. So in an attempt to stop this perceived chaos that's about to ensue because the queen said no, 
We read in verse 20 that the decree the king issues will be heard throughout the vast kingdom. So all women will honor their husband from the greatest to the least. That's the irony of it. The king is trying to maintain control even though he has no control in his own household. But he thinks he has control. I can make this decree and I can fix this problem. I can't deal with my own wife, but I can deal with everybody else's wife. The king of Persia believes that he has all control as it relates to his kingdom. But what he fails to see is that the, ki- the control of his kingdom has always rested in the hands of a God of providence. Though the king thinks he is in control, God is working behind the scenes to fulfill his covenant and protect his people. And as we'll see in the remainder of the book, God is orchestrating a deliverance that only he can see at this moment. God's control, check this out, extends beyond the present to the future events that have yet to take place. Hear me when I say this. Any earthly control that the powers of this world have is at best a reflection of God's supreme control and at worst a mere delusion. Let me say that again in case you missed it. Any earthly control that the powers of this world have is at best a reflection of God's supreme control and at worst a mere delusion. What I'm trying to get you to see is that the mightiest in this world are no match for God. The wisest of this world still don't even measure up to the foolishness of God. The richest in the world are mere peasants compared to the kingdom of God. And when the powers of this earth think that they are in control, God is still working. You might remember this when we just, we just finished the Psalms throughout the summer, but David puts it like this in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. Here it is, the one enthroned in heaven, that's God, laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Now church, I believe this morning that this truth, that God is working when earthly powers think they are in control, is a truth that we desperately need to be reminded of. Because too often, we, even as Christians, myself included, we can place our hope in the control of the wrong people. You know how I know this to be true? Because of the chaos that's been seen in the American church this past election cycle. That's how I know we put our hope in the wrong people. Can, I'm almost done. Praise God, because I don't got much left in me. But can I preach it like I feel it for a minute? I'm so tired of being told what the greatest threat to Christianity is. I'm so overhearing about what the next thing is that's going to destroy our faith. Because as I look back through the history of the people of God, I know one thing for certain. That God has always been working when earthly powers thought that they were in control. God was working even when the people of God had a sea in front of them and an army behind them and the Egyptians thought we got them right where we want them. 
God was working even when a shepherd boy faced down the fiercest warrior the Philistines could produce and they thought, surely this is the end of these pesky Israelites. God was working even when Nebuchadnezzar built a statue and said, everyone who fails to bow down and worship will be thrown in the fire and three faithful Israelites refused to bow. God was working even when Habakkuk didn't understand when God said he was going to use a pagan nation to overthrow them, but ultimately it would lead to their future deliverance. God was working even when King Herod got all up in his feelings and started murdering babies because some wise men told him a better king had been born. God was working even when a tyrant named Saul had the full authority of the Sanhedrin to kill Christians and he held their coats as they murdered our brother Stephen. God was working even in the Middle Ages when a religion was hijacked for political control and financial gain and it seemed as if the gospel had been lost. Let me tell you, God was working even in the Enlightenment when thinkers like Rousseau declared to the world that there is no objective purpose. There is no God and the meaning and purpose can come from you as an individual. God was working even in the antebellum south when slaveholders hijacked the perfect word of God and used it as a weapon to argue for the vile practice of slavery. God is working today in our world and he declares that in a world that declares there is no truth and through all of this the people of God and the faith in God has not been thwarted because earthly powers think they are in control. And y'all aren't excited enough. And so if that didn't do it, I got one better for you. There was another time when earthly powers thought they were in control. They thought they can put an end to the ministry of this man named Jesus. A man who healed the sick, who cared for the poor, who served the lowly and rejected. Let me tell you, they put him on trial, trying to use their earthly power to put an end to him. They paraded him before the high priest, and the high priest said, let's put a stop to this. This man's got to die. They paraded him before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin said, let's put a stop to this. This man has to die. They took him to Pontius Pilate. And Pilate said, I have the earthly power to decide this man's fate. What do you want me to do with him? They said, let's put a stop to this. This man has got to die. And in that moment, when the earthly powers used all their might, they thought they could end the ministry of Jesus Christ. They walked him up a hill called Calvary. They put nails in his hands and his feet. They hung him high and they watched him die. And in that moment, not only the earthly powers thought that they had won, but all the powers of hell celebrated. They thought the Son of God was dead forever. They thought that that they had won. They thought they had killed God. But I came this morning to tell you that when the powers to be think they have control, God is working because Jesus died Friday, but God was still working. Jesus stayed dead on Saturday, but God was still working. And on the third day, early on Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the dead and walked out of that tomb victorious because God was working. Hear me. Hear me, our faith has withstood not because we have overcome every danger in our power. Not because we are so wise and so in control. Our faith has withstood because God has always been working. Even when other powers thought that they were in control. Listen to me this morning, church. God is on his throne. Do not place your trust. And those who have earthly power. 
Place your trust in the God who is working even when we lose control. The God who is working when we make foolish decisions. The God who is working when we think we have control. Place your trust in the God of providence because if there is one thing I know, he will not fail. And in those moments when you cannot see what he is doing, those are the moments we trust what he has told us about himself. When we cannot trace his hand, we trust his heart. He's a good God, isn't he, church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that when we are at our worst, you're at your best. God, I thank you that your plans and your purpose, they've never depended on us getting it right. God, we thank you that you will accomplish all that you have said that you would accomplish. And God, if we're honest, it's easy for us to lose sight of that. It's easy for us to get so distracted when we see the chaos and the struggle and the hardship in this world. It's, it's easy for us to get discouraged. But God, I pray that as we, as we, your people, dive deep into the book of Esther, as we see your heart, that we would be reminded that you are still working, that you are a trustworthy and a faithful God. And if we ever doubt that, even for a moment, I pray that we would look to the cross of Christ and be reminded that you have already won. The grave is empty. You rose victorious in all your power. And yes, we still face trials and hardship, but we know that the new Jerusalem is coming. The new heaven is coming. So we hold fast to you, Lord trust in you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.